I'm James Holman, and this is Please Go On, our weekly podcast where we go deeper with the author of a really interesting opinion piece for The Washington Post. My guest this week is Annabelle Tomatich. She's a journalist in Fort Myers, Florida. For 15 years, she wrote restaurant reviews for her hometown newspaper under the pseudonym Jean Labouffe. I liked being a French dude, perhaps because I'm not at all a French dude. I'm a half Filipina, half Yugoslavian, English Canadian woman, born one year after Labouffe was created in the same place he was created, a city named for a Confederate colonel. I wanted to talk to Annabelle about what this professional double life taught her about racial identity and white privilege. Here's our conversation. You spent 15 years writing restaurant reviews under a pseudonym. Could you explain the history of the food critic known as Jean Labouffe? I inherited the pseudonym when I started writing reviews, which I think was 2005, 2006. I mean, in Fort Myers, it's just kind of a a known entity. It was created in 1979. Um, the guy who created it, his name is Bob Morris. He was just a features reporter looking to take his wife on more dates, and he didn't want people to know it was him. <laughs> so he was like, let's come up with the most pretentious, like, you know, annoying sounding critic we can. And that's how John LaBeouf was born. It literally, it translates to John the Beef, which is <laughs> sort of Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, this is like back in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s when, you know, the New York Times and, and you guys, you know, you had these really kind of notorious restaurant critics that could make and break restaurants. And this was kind of a, a play against that, I think, of just saying, you know, we're not New York, we're Fort Myers and Cape Coral and Naples and stuff, but we can still, you know, we can still play this game just in our own funny way. So, and it, right. And I loved that the history of it is it, it wasn't about going to the Ritz Carlton or the fanciest restaurants. It was sort of a, in, in some iterations, kind of a early version of diners, drive-ins and dives. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. That it was kind of a, a an egalitarian uh, review, but by this ostentatious Frenchman. <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. I think the very first review, I dug it up in the like microfish at our, our Lee County library at some point. And um, it was the Matt Lachey Oyster House, which is, I still love Matt Lachey. It's like this little um, island in between here and Pine Island. And, uh, you know, it was just like this little oyster shack on the water. And um, they actually give it a horrible, <laughs> it was like a one star. <laughs> like the very first review was just an absolute like teardown of this little oyster house on Matt Lachey. <laughs> Um, so yeah, <laughs> it started out, it started out interestingly, uh, and it has kept going ever since. Yeah. And, and for those who don't know Fort Myers in the area and the paper, I mean, it's just such an important franchise, such a, a known thing. And you write in the piece about speaking to rotary clubs where people listened politely and then asked, but do you know Jean LeBouf and getting emails that started dear sir and share Monsieur, what was that like? And did it feel weirder and weirder over time? A little bit, especially because it is a small town and, you know, th there's one food writer at the paper and it's not hard to draw the line that maybe she's also the restaurant critic. Um, so it, it definitely became like a very thin veil over the 15 years, you know, especially among people who who live here and have worked here for, for a while. When it started, it, it was it was an honor because I grew up here, you know, so I, I grew up reading these reviews and I grew up. I, w I worked at restaurants that were reviewed by Jean LaBeouf. And, you know, I remember like sitting around the little workstation. We had to like roll silverware and stuff after our shifts and reading through the review that had just come out that day and trying to figure out, you know, who served him, 
who was the cook that like, who made the chowder that day, just those little things. So it was it was like part of this the lore in this area. So when it was like my turn, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the best thing to ever happen to me. <laughs> like I get to be Jean Leboeuf now. So there was, you know, there was really no questioning at first. And then it kind of over the years became like, well, what are we, what are we really doing with this? Yeah. And I want to talk about that, what you call in your op-ed, one hell of an identity crisis. But before yeah. we get there, which is a good way to put it, what made you want to become a food writer? Oh gosh, I felt like completely backwards into this position. Um, you know, I, I I went to college to study medicine. I was on the pre-med track my whole, you know, four years at the University of Florida. I graduated and I took a year off and did a bunch of traveling and like read a couple Anthony Bourdain books <laughs> um, and just kind of fell in love with this allure of food, you know, this kind of mythology of it all. And um, the idea of not having to think constantly and not having to, you know, crunch numbers and balance formulas and stuff like that and just make food was this huge draw. And also this kind of, you know, I, like a little bit of a F you to my mom in a way of, you know, certain jobs are the right jobs and this is the right thing to do. And, um, you know, really wanting to just do something different, I think, in that rebellious kind of early 20 something way that kids have. <laughs> there are much worse ways to rebel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. This was, yeah, this is my allowed form, of, my self-allowed form of rebellion. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to go be a line cook. <laughs> it's wild. Part of it is your father, your dad. You mentioned on Friday mornings when you were a little girl, he'd read the latest review and say, let's see how many stars Jean gives this place. And you'd lean over your bowl of checks, eager to learn what the review said. Can you talk about the influence of your dad in taking this direction and, and that the relationship between your dad and your mom? Yeah, I, he, he so he died when I was nine. So a lot of that, you know, those memories are, are from my mom, you know, just saying like, you know, your dad was the gourmand, like he was the foodie. He was the one who kind of dragged us to these kind of higher end restaurants and stuff like that. Um, my mom was the cook. Like she was the person who was like, okay, that's all great. But tonight we're having chicken and rice again. And, you know, this makes sense and this we can afford and, you know, stop, stop, you know, going crazy with all, all this stuff. But I think, you know, that, that part of me definitely was like, remember, you know, after he died, we really didn't go out to eat very often. The Wendy's Super Bar was like our big, our big night out after, after he passed. So I think there was a part of me that kind of looked back on those times with that special light on them of, oh my gosh, remember when we used to go to restaurants and like, you know, do, get dressed up and do fancy things and stuff. So I, I, I definitely think that was a little part of it was just kind of like, there's, there's other ways to eat other than just cooking every single night. <laughs> um, yeah. You grew up multiracial in Fort Myers and you write in the piece about what you describe as your racist white grandmother calling the grandkids mongoloids, just horrifying saying to stay out of the sun. So you didn't become quote Negroes. And then your Filipino mother didn't like your, your white grandmother, but uh, that didn't stop her from, as you write, pinching our flat noses and trying to make them thinner what was it like growing up multiracial in the 80s and 90s in a place like Fort Myers? Uh, you know, you, you just don't quite fit in anywhere. I think a lot of people assumed I was Hispanic because that was kind of the closest that this area knew, I guess. Um, and so a lot of people would speak to us in Spanish and, and especially after my dad died, you know, would he 
those generalities and prejudices that they had encountered from from not having a ton of diversity here onto us. So there was always just kind of this idea of not really knowing who I was or not really understanding who I was. I went back to the Philippines, I think we were 12. And the culture shock of that was was pretty incredible of being in Manila and seeing my mom's the oldest of seven children and most of her siblings are, are were still in the Philippines. And so getting there and kind of thinking like, these are my people, but then being six inches taller than all of my titas and titos <laughs> because of those Slavic genes that, you know, make me very tall. Um, and kind of realizing that I didn't really fit in there either. Those kind of factors definitely, you know, sit in the back of your head of, you know, where do I belong? Like, what is this, like, where, where is this place that I fit in? And well, I don't think it was here, I, you know, this area, I've come to embrace it in a lot of ways. And I do think I've kind of found a niche here. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that I appreciate and they appreciate. In your piece, you quote critic Adam Bradley, who said in a recent New York Times essay that one of the greatest under-recognized privileges of whiteness might be the license it gives some to fail without fear. How did that manifest itself in your writing as, as Jean LeBouf? Did you write differently because of the pen name or did it make you more fearless? I think so, honestly. I, I was reading that, that piece and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is exactly like why I loved, I loved that so much. I loved the name so much is that, you know, I, I just knew that I could, I could be honest and, you know, tell things like they were without that fear of people coming back at me and saying like, what do you know about this? Like, who are you? Who are you to say that this is good or bad? Um, you know, despite the history of working in restaurants and all that, I, I just really didn't. It's that imposter syndrome that every everybody has, it feels like these days. But especially when I first got the name, my idea was to keep it as close to the last person who was doing it, the style and, th- and stuff like that. Because at first there was two of us and we would switch on and off. So one week it would be a different person and the next week it would be me. And then we would go back and forth. I was really kind of just mimicking the tone of the person who was sharing this byline with me. And then he left for a different position and it was just me. And at that point I was kind of like, well, let's run with this. Like, let's do some fun stuff, you know? And I read a bunch of Jeffrey Steingarten and Ruth Reichel and Sam Sifton. And, you know, just, I tried to incorporate their voices. I think I I tried to like, be like, we deserve, you know, someone of that caliber here in like little Fort Myers. We deserve somebody who can still like understand the nuances of the industry and can, you know, knows food and loves food and things like that. Like, why don't we get someone like that? I mean, do you, do you feel like writing under the pen name made it harder to develop your own voice? Or do you think you sort of evolved over time that voice once once you were writing it as sort of the solo byline? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I'm not 100% sure. Um, over time, people would say like, oh, it's, it's obviously you because, you know, the because I, I did have my own bylines. Like I was still a food writer for the paper. So, you know, I would write recipes and chef profiles and things like that under my Annabelle Tomatich byline. And, you know, over time, like certain readers would be like, I'm pretty sure like you use this word here and use the exact same word in like that review two weeks ago. Like you're Jean LaBeouf, aren't you? And I was like, I, I can't tell. <laughs> um, so I, I think over time, I, I honestly think that fearlessness helped me develop, uh, uh, like it helped me be mm-hmm. bolder in some ways, you know, of just being like, meh, what's the, what's the fallout going to be? Like someone gets mad at this guy and <laughs> that's not on you, you know? I was also very 
cautious. Um, I think there was still kind of that, that part of me that was like, don't go off the rails, you know, like don't just take down some restaurant because you can. Um, and that, you know, that whole idea of like, with great power comes great responsibility, like the old Spider-Man line, you know, don't just be mean because you can be mean. My girlfriend is a journalist too. And I see the emails she gets that she shows me and, and I see the emails I get. And oh, yeah. it is remarkable, even when we're writing on similar subjects, how there is mansplaining and misogyny. People just write to her with a different tone, often condescending that they do not write to me. And I guess I wonder, you know, you're writing bylines as Annabelle and as Jean LeBouf. Did you notice a different tone in the sort of reader emails you were getting between those two different accounts? I do feel like when people reached out to JLB, as we call him, they were very proper. I don't know if it was just that the, the name inspired that, you know, even though we're very clear that it was a, a fake name and that was not an actual French person. <laughs> there was just still this kind of like idea that that. You know, when you when you reach out to Jean LeBouf, like it's dear sir, and it's, you know, these very kind of proper, sincerely so-and-so. And I, I do think people took it definitely a more casual tone when they wrote me. Honestly, I wasn't doing a ton of takedown stories, even under my own byline. <laughs> so the, you know, there wasn't a ton of opportunity for brushback, but you know, of course you get it still. You, even with stories that you think are innocuous, people take offense in some way, but. Um, That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I thought this was a happy piece. <laughs> like, what are we upset about today? <laughs> We'll be right back after a short break. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Why did you ultimately decide to reveal your true identity as Annabelle earlier this year? It was actually kind of at the behest of a colleague of mine. We acquired the paper uh, down in Naples, and the idea was, you know, we should expand the brand into that that market. One of the first people to to write under it was like, "Why why are we doing this?" <laughs> um, and she had actually just gone to an Association of Food Journalists conference, which God rest their souls, I think they closed last year during the pandemic. But she had just been to the the AFJ conference, and she told a couple people what we were doing, and they were just absolutely aghast. Like, you cannot do that. That is not ethical. That is not, that's not how it works. You need transparency. You need all these kind of basic tenets of journalism that we know. <laughs> and that for a decade and a half, I had been like kind of happy to overlook because I was like, well, this is a, you know, this is a legacy. We're, we're keeping on with a legend. People recognize it, you know. Um, and in my head, I, I really thought that it was kind of like, if I'm going as Jean LeBouf and people supposedly don't know who I am, then I'm experiencing the restaurant the way anybody else would. I saw it as kind of this like selfless act <laughs> of like, you know, like I'm getting the same treatment Joe Schmo would if they were at X, Y, or Z place. 
And then, like I said, you know, as that veil wore thin over time, it was kind of like, well, they know, (laughs) you know, they know that I'm the food writer person at the very least. They probably suspect that I also have like some involvement with this John LaBeouf persona. You know, and you could kind of see like servers get nervous and the talk behind the bar of like, oh, you know, she's over there and like make sure blah, blah, blah. You know, um, you can just kind of sense it. That spidey sense goes off of like, oh, they know, they know. And at that point, it, it was kind of like, if that selfless part of it isn't there anymore, then then what are we doing exactly? Like, why are we breaking the rules for this? And so we sat down with the editors and had some really good conversations about, can we still preserve the brand, but still give ourselves bylines? And ultimately it came down to, yeah, like there's room for both. And you also write that the name's power and privilege had consumed you. Uh, and, and I thought that was a, a really poignant sentence. It, it was kind of like, well, who... Who am I? You know, I, I had applied to um, Eater, I think at one point was hiring a restaurant critic nationally. And um, I remember typing up my resume and like sending it off and I didn't hear anything back. But, you know, I was like, what? What? I don't have any credentials in this. You know, I, I don't I have to get people to trust <laughs> that I have written these thousand five hundred, however many it is, 10 years at 50 reviews a year um, or 15 years. Uh, so at some point. I think that kind of added up in my head also of like, you've been sacrificing more than you realize. <laughs> like, you know, if there, if there is other opportunity down this path, it's not going to happen if you're writing under someone else's name. And then also for, if we hope to get a colleague who's good and is also going to write reviews for us, they're not going to sacrifice their byline. In your piece, you say you didn't get any hate mail uh, and that it was mostly positive reader response, which is obviously heartening. But what, what, what has the feedback been like? When the February essay ran in the news press and in the Naples Daily News, it was it was really positive. And I, I was sweating bullets, kind of watching my inbox and kind of seeing what was going to happen. Having grown up here and everything, I had this very kind of iconic idea of Jean LeBouf. And I was very convinced that people were going to be like, how dare you? How could you how could you do this to us? Um, but, you know, the reality is like the population, the fluctuation of people and, you know, people moving in and out and stuff like that more than anything, they were just happy to see transparency and honesty. Um, There was one woman who was very, very insistent that this was not the right move. And she's like, but she and she was kind of the same way I was. She's like, I grew up with John. I know John. I love John. Like, don't get rid of this person. But, you know, we had that couple back and forth via email. And I, I kind of explained, you know, the code of ethics and the modernizing of times and things. And I wouldn't say I completely brought her around, but... We kind of agreed to disagree at the end. So it was, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, honestly, it was overwhelmingly positive, which was not what I was expecting entirely. So, <laughs> yeah. There were two comments that really jumped out at me. Uh, in, and there were, I think, like a thousand comments on, on your op-ed for the post. The first made a really good point, which was, uh, for years, female science fiction writers also published under male pseudonyms or with their first and middle initials and last names to ensure their stuff would get published and when Hugo awards and such. So you're in good company, which is actually kind of thought provoking. It feels like there are a lot of other areas where this dynamic has also been applied. Yeah. You know, it's, it's weird that some things change and some things don't change. Um, like you'd hope that, you know, by now we'd maybe be past that and able to just live our lives as ourselves. But, um, there's a, I mean, there's certainly a comfort to hiding, you know, despite the the price of it. The other reader comment that, that really struck me was 
from someone who says, as a white woman, I don't always understand what being something other than white in this country can feel like. And your story is an easy to understand example and challenges me to take value from the message and not let the ethnicity of the messenger distort its value. And she says, thank you for this important lesson. Wow. You're welcome. Which was very nice. <laughs> yeah, that's really nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't, it's like, honestly, it's still something I'm grappling with, you know, like being 41 now <laughs> and still in this little town where I grew up and everything. And, you know, we have kids and I have a family and everything here now. And just trying to understand identity is like, I mean, that's like the point of life in some way. Like it just, it takes a while to kind of figure all of it out. And when you have a couple of different variables thrown in there, it's like, you know, the math equation gets a little harder even. <laughs> Your experience is more common than I think is widely understood. As you note in your op-ed, the 2020 census numbers showed more people identify now as multiracial than ever before. 33.8 million in 2020 compared with just 9 million in 2010. As, as you know, you've had this journey, what advice do you have for others who are also trying to come to terms with their multiracial identities in whatever way they sort of manifest themselves? The census numbers were just interesting to me because I've always felt like, you know, we're not alone. There's, there's so many of us, but there's not like, you know, a Filipino, Yugoslavian, English, Canadian, like support group. <laughs> that probably is on Facebook somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> um, I should start it, I guess. But, you know, there's so many specificities that come with, you know, this kind of you know melting pot of America or whatever you want to call it. And I think sometimes like I get too dragged down into that. And, you know, you just kind of have to remember that that experience is is happening for millions and millions and millions of people. The idea that like between 2010 and 2020, what, like 20 some million multiracial kids were born is, is you know, not accurate. It's just the fact that the census is, is finally counting us better. Um, and those questions have become more nuanced where it's, you know, there's the options for Asia, you know, are, are five, six, seven different boxes you can check of, you know, Filipino and Chinese and Japanese and the Pacific Island, you know, so there's, there's more gradation in there now, which is nice to see. And I, I feel like when like we as a country can kind of understand what we actually look like, then it helps, you know, individuals also kind of understand, okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> like there's, there's lots of people, maybe not exactly like me, but very, in very similar situations. Yeah. And you're in Florida, which is really the microcosm <laughs> of, of oh, it all. Lord. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, yeah. <laughs> like, what, what can I say about Florida? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> what can anyone say about Florida? But, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Annabelle, thank you so much for your time and, and for writing this piece for us. It is, uh, it, it really is quite thought provoking and, and amusing. Thank you for having me. Annabelle Tomatich keeps writing, under her real name now, for the Fort Myers News Press. An earlier version of this episode noted that Annabelle recently reviewed an Italian restaurant on Sanibel Island. Her byline was on that piece, but Annabelle let us know that though she edited the review, freelancer Gina Birch should get the credit. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. Our theme music's by Ted Muldoon. 
You can find the link to Annabelle's full essay in our show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us so that other new listeners can discover it. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another episode because there's always more to say.